1. Let me read it out loud for us. James 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify you hearts, your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Father, we just read the words that you opposed the proud but gave grace to the humble. Help us, Father, to come before your word, um, to allow the Spirit just to bring conviction or encouragement. God, help us to be fed on your word. Many of us, Father, come spiritually hungry and dehydrated. And we ask now that it be your word that would grant us the nourishment that we need. Be among your people now, we pray. Amen. I was in the seventh grade, and uh, my junior high had this thing called teams, and what they did is uh, just a way to kind of organize the 300 or so students they had. Um, each team was named after a college in California. So there's UCLA. There's Cal Poly, um, there's Stanford, and I had Long Beach, just at UC. And um, at the end of that year, if you had enough spirit points by wearing like your team's color or be participating in, in um, assemblies or whatever nonsense, uh, you get to take like the field trip and you go, went down to LA, went to medieval times, and then we also took a... <gasps> Yeah, all right, it's pretty fun. It's lit, man. Um, oh my gosh, it's the best. After Medieval Times, we went and we visited uh, UC Long Beach, right? Just a college, huge, you know, like seeing college classes and, you know, they're trying to expose you early, like, work hard to go to college. Well, then there's like an extra little getaway if you had enough spirit points. And seventh grade was when Attack of the Clones Star Wars came out, right? I've already seen it twice. But if you had enough spirit points, you got to miss school one day, walk the four blocks over to the movie theaters, and, and watch Attack of the Clones. And uh, I was five points shy, and I told her if I wrote a, like a little essay on why Long Beach would go to, be a good school to go to, could I go? And she granted it, and I went. And again, this is the third time I've seen Star Wars, like 
dude, seventh grade was like the peak of my Star Wars geekiness. Like, I would quote the original movies, eyes closed, like. Um, and so I'm there at the movie theaters, and I'm sitting next to two. I call them acquaintances. Maybe they're friends, but this is kind of the trip where not everyone got to go, and so some of my closest friends weren't there. But so I'm just kind of hanging out with these guys who I kind of know from some of my classes. And they're more or less known for being troublemakers. So I'm sitting there watching the movie the whole time. And the two of them, I guess they had sunflower seeds, and were like spitting them at the girls in front of them. One of them threw their gum at some girl. But I'm in the row. And the end of the movie, one of the chaperones went and told my science teacher that, hey, the three boys in that row were spitting sunflower seeds and throwing gum and the whole time were disruptive. Now me and Mrs. Cunningham already had a pretty rocky relationship. The last day of school, and it might have conspired out of the situation, but the last day of school, she's like, if you want me to sign your yearbook, just open it to like the staff page and I'll come by and sign it. And I opened it on my desk where she came by and I drew, uh, drew horns and like a little devil stake, you know, <laughs> next to her picture. And I just remember her like coming by, looking at it, and just walking straight by. <laughs> like I had, I needed for her to know that I consider her to be the personification of evil. Um, <laughs> But anyways, in this situation, she takes the three of us and she just starts just laying into us. Like, this is supposed to be for the leaders, people with the best points, and you guys you absolutely dropped the ball. And, you know, the thing about it, this is the end of the school year. So we're walking back, and there's a, uh, a yearbook signing party. And so there's free pizza, and there's a DJ outside. And you get your yearbook, and you go around with your friends, and you sign in, and they say dumb stuff like have a something summer, you know. The typical thing you send in your book, maybe. But I couldn't go. Because I was sitting there in an office trying to plead my case, like, listen, I didn't do anything. I, I was just watching a movie. I love Star Wars. And even the two guys next to me, they were trying to advocate, like, yo, hey, he didn't do anything. He's cool. Sorry, we're, we're dumb. But Aaron, Aaron's fine. He didn't do anything. Mrs. Cunningham wasn't having it. Okay. She was just like, she just like, no, you are the troublemaker. They're lying. You're lying. And so maybe it's like the first time in my life where I found the courage or the sin capacity to stand up to my teacher and just to look her in the eye and just go back and forth, arguing, raising our voices. Like, uh, I think I called her dumb at one point, you know. Like, it was, it was rough. Like, um, I was really worked up, though. Here's why. Because I didn't do anything, truthfully, to this day. And I was being punished from something, a really good opportunity. And so we're just duking it out. And finally, the vice principal walks out and he hears this. And I'm just like, I'm not crying, but like I'm, I'm getting pretty emotional. Like I'm just like, I'm trying to like, what do you need me to tell you? Even they said I didn't do anything. I was like three seats away from them. And, and he finally, he heard my story. He's like, Aaron, you should just go. Just, just go. And that was one of the first times where... I mean, I let that conflict between me and that teacher clearly, even to this day, affect how I view her. Like, truthfully, if she walked in this room, I don't know how I'd feel. I don't know how I'd feel. Maybe, maybe the Lord's done enough in my life to where I would apologize. But we all, at times, deal with conflict with people. Whether with our parents, friends, Teachers, spouses, neighbors, strangers. Conflict resolution is a very 
tricky thing. And it's kind of an art. But I promise you, and I'll bank on it, that if you spend enough time with anyone, and maybe it's happened with people in this group already, you will at times have conflict. You will butt heads with people. You will disagree with them. You will get into arguments. I think of growing up with my brothers, all the fights that we got into about who's making the macaroni. I was like, it was a legitimate fight that I have with my younger brother. No, it's your turn to make the macaroni cheese. No, I made it yesterday. I don't care. You make it today. <laughs> you know, like, um, truthfully, times of um, going back and forth with my wife about issues of, of money and what we're doing with our time and, and our future and, and raising our voices and saying things that would under, undercut the other person. Strangers. I mean, I was at Wildways in the middle schoolers, and there's this, like, maybe like this 12-year-old kid, and he's like in like, the kitty, like the little, like, uh, like, you know, like, he, whatever, like, little kid part. And there's like this little squirt gun. And he looks at my, like, two-year-old daughter, and he's just like, <laughs> like, and the kid, my, you know, Abby's like whole, and like, you know, I'm getting squirted in the face and starts crying, like, <laughs> and, and my wife's like I've, I've told this guy twice to knock it off he keeps squirting us like I'm like I got, I'm like a 12 year old kid like I'm in his face like I don't know what I said to him I just saw red truthfully but I just remember his face was like yeah I'm done with this you know I'm done okay dude you win like um, strangers we have conflict. And it seems like even within the church, I mean, how many churches have split or have unhealthy relationships and, and people don't like so-and-so and, and they talk about them. And, um, and it just seems no matter where we go, we're going to find opportunities. Anytime humans are together, there's going to be conflict. In James chapter 3, he's at the end of it, he's talking about wisdom. And he's saying there's a, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And but the wisdom far above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. And so now he's talking about wisdom and people think he's switching topics by talking about conflict resolution. But in fact, what James is doing here is he's trying to give you practical ways of how to be wise. Do you think it's a good thing to learn how to deal with conflict? Do you think maybe if my youth pastor the week before I went and saw Star Wars talked about this passage, I would have had an opportunity to deal better with my science teacher and maybe that would have stopped me from putting horns on her yearbook? I should go to my parents' house and find that yearbook and show you guys. I was pretty proud of the drawing at the time. James 4, the passage we just read talking about how we can truthfully and honestly with good integrity find conflict resolution. Because here's what I would venture to stake my money on. Most of us at times when we have conflict resolution, whether we're annoyed, hurt, angered by someone, this is what we tend to do. We tend to either isolate that person and in that we turn our backs and we kind of just avoid them and say, you know what, that person's crazy. Uh, every time I'm with them, just... Or we just kind of, maybe it's with a friend or, you know, our family, we just tend to ignore it. 
and to maybe get in a big fight or a big argument, and two days later, you just pretend like nothing ever happened. So we kind of like stuff the issue, and we never really drop it. And I don't think that's healthy either. And so James asks this question, right? What is the first question in verse 1? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? What's the real issue? When my wife and I are arguing or with, my, with my parents or with one of my brothers or with Jonathan, because sometimes he's whacked out of his mind. I'm kidding, but he's at my house a lot. <laughs> what causes these issues? Does anyone know? pretty simple because the answer is at like the very next word, right? Next sentence. Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? Just pause, okay? Just pause for a second. Sometimes like we just need to like sit in the implication of what the passage is saying. Here's the question. What causes fights among you? Here's the answer. The answer. What is it? Your passions are at war within you. Do you know what he just said? conflict that you have with people is stemmed from you. Someone's like, are you annoyed right now? I'm like, yeah. Why? Because you keep asking me if I'm annoyed. It's your fault, right? Like, are, are you angry? Yeah, I'm angry because you just did X, Y, Z. You see how we always have this tendency of if you stop doing this, if you stop saying this, if you start being a better da-da-da-da-da, then I won't be upset or mad or frustrated or angry. It's everyone else's fault to why there's conflict. But James seems to think that the reason why we have conflict with our parents, I mean, let's be honest, folks. You guys are in high school. How many of you just, whether verbally or in your head, just have some real issues with your parents. You think they're overbearing, mean, they don't get you, and you maybe you, you argue back, or you just bite your tongue, and you say, if only my parents, da-da-da-da-da. Do you know what James is saying? It's actually you. Sorry, I forgot my total outline, but the three things here. There's conflict with fellow men, there's conflict with God, and then there's the resolution. So he raises this question of, why is there conflict? Because there's cravings that are war within you. And so he says that the problem we see with ourselves is, is this, is that there is a lack of a desire to please God. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So illustrating the fact that the reason why there is conflict with any humans stems from the fact that we have no desire to please God. And so he illustrates this in three different ways. First one, this is seen in our lustful desires. Think about it for a second. You and a friend get in an argument. Or maybe it's, maybe it's not like you're not raising your voices, but you kind of like go back and forth. Why? 
I think there's a few things about that, right? Like, what about the fact that sometimes we just want to be taken more seriously? And so we're like, you're not listening to me. Listen. Or we want to be respected more. Do you know, like, we hate when our parents treat us like we're little kids. And so we say, I'm not a kid. We want to be valued more. We want people to include us. We want people to think that we're, we're worth something, that we have dignity. And so when we don't have that, what happens? Conflict. We want to be viewed smarter. We want to be viewed as more responsible. See, I would say this. All conflict with every relationship stems from an unmet expectation or desire. I feel like he escalates this really quickly. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. Whoa, dude, I'm not murdering anyone. But pause. Again, pause. What does Jesus say? Any of you who are just angry with anyone, you're liable to the fires of hell. Because the heart of a murderer is the heart of anger. And so when we get in conflicts with one another, when we start having quarrels, when there is um, just a lack of community within a church or a youth group or a family, it stems from unmet expectations that people aren't giving me what I want, therefore I am angry, and that projects in either I'm going to give you the cold shoulder. You can ask me as many questions as you want, but you're not worth me even talking to. We raise our voice and we just see red and we get angry. Or maybe even worse than all those, we gossip about people. We see him in person, oh, hey, man, what's up, what's up? Can you believe that so-and-so? So it's seen in our lustful desires. We want, but we can't have. Second thing, it's seen in our lack of asking. If we want to have peace with one another, if we want wisdom, it says you need to ask. The way we deal with conflict is not by looking at, give me what I want. It's by, it's by coming to God and asking. And he goes even further to say that it is seen in our asking for wrong motives. That apparently, whoever James is writing to, they have this huge issue of conflict with one another in that they just desire whatever for themselves. And then it seems like they are praying for things only to benefit themselves. That's a fascinating point. I I truly don't know what God thinks of when we pray before a test. Maybe he values it. Maybe he honors it. Maybe he appreciates that you're just coming to him with every small little thing. I I think there's truth in that. But think about the motives of why we pray for things. Do we pray with kingdom desires? I feel like in every expectation and principle there is in Scripture, Jesus models it the best. Not my will, but yours. Why is there fights and quarrels among you? Ultimately, it's because of this. It's because we are bent on ourselves. Because we want. We want to be affirmed. We want to be loved. We want to be liked. We want to feel like we're the most important person. And when that doesn't happen, 
quarrels and fights break out. To my dismay, in junior high and high school, I used to love watching fights. Fights after school, before school, during lunch. It was just the best part. It was maybe the one thing that made school exciting for that day. We think of how petty those fights were in high school and middle school. Over what? You're talking crap about me. You're talking to my girlfriend. You, you called me one little name. Do you see how the conflict is not the other person, but it's us? This is a hard message, because you know why? Because he's, he's, you guys know the story of how like, um, Nathan came to David after his sin with Bathsheba, and he tells him this whole long story of the rich ruler who took the sheep from the poor man, and then you know the, the sheep died, and da-da-da-da, and David's like, oh, that man's going to die, and he's going to pay back what he owes. And then Nathan's like, yo, you are that person. And he's like pointing right at him. James is pretty much saying, in conflict, guess what? You're the issue. You're the person who projects what they want and your lustful desires and your wrong motives in prayer. And truthfully, just our lack of asking for healthy relationships. I wonder if we, as Christians, and maybe I'll even include myself in this group, as young Christians, the next time we get into conflict, maybe it's this week, you want to do something with your friends and your parents say, no. Maybe we need to start thinking through some of the things of why do I get upset? Why do I get angry? Why do I feel the need to yell back? Why do I feel the need to retaliate? And I think, guys, this is a very, very hard thing to do. But we need to begin to have this, this ability to think within our own motives. Why is my parents making me so mad right now? Is it the fact that I feel like they're not taking the time to really listen to me? That they think I'm just a little kid? And that hurts? And then we need to use that fuel to go to God in prayer and say, God, remind me of who you consider me to be and help me to respond accordingly to those people around me. There's this quote that says, failure to please God, our failure or the other person's, or both, is the ultimate cause of all relational conflict. Failure to please God all stems from the fact that we have relational conflict. Bank on it. Whenever there is conflict, one or both parties are not pleasing God. Relational conflict stems from a lack of a desire to please God. If you are someone who deals with a lot of conflict, her arguments, her fights, quarrels, there's a sense in which how you desire to please God is non-existent in your relationship with others. He moves on to the source of our conflict with God. So it's not that we just have relational conflict with each other and strangers and the people we live with, but we have conflict with God. If you look down at verse 
4, he says, You adulterous people. That's not a nice thing to be called, by the way. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And what we can kind of see right off the bat is that conflict between man and conflict between God a lot, a lot of times is a blurry line. It looks the same. Do you know why? Because in both situations, we are bent on ourselves and our passions and what we want. The first thing we see is that God is in conflict with the system of the world. And by world here, it's not talking about um, just the people. It's just like the order of the world, the fallen system. God is at war with the world. And so I like Kevin DeYoung's quote about what is worldliness. You guys ready for this? This is good. This is gold. Worldliness is anything that makes righteousness look strange and sin look normal. Worldliness is anything that makes righteousness look strange and sin look normal. They're just assumptions in the, in, the, in the Christian life. And here's one of the assumptions that I have with every single person in this room, including myself, that we all have ways in our life in which we are being pulled by the patterns of this world. I can ask a few questions. I can look about how you spend your time, what you talk about, what you think about. Even in my own life, there will be signs of worldliness. We may have unhealthy views of what success is or unhealthy views of sexuality that is honoring to God or a general disregard of doing the right things in terms of our, our speech and showing kindness to others. Think about it for a second. Worldliness. I think we don't necessarily have a problem about making righteousness look strange, but more so making sin look normal. Is it normal for you just to talk to people however you feel at the moment? Is your sexual purity normal? Do you look different than the world? How about, how about we flip that on the other side? Righteousness looks strange. You see, here's where I worry, maybe. And worry is a, is a very relative and loose term because I believe in the sovereignty of God. But what are the things that still your heart's desires and your emotions? What are the things that when you naturally drift off to think about whatever, what captures your heart? What is the fantasy of your life? I don't have this in my notes, but I'm going to go for it anyways. See, the reason why... I don't want to be legalistic. Why should we care about the preaching of God's word? 
Why do I make a big stunt of making sure, open your Bibles, read your Bibles? Why should we care about prayer? Why do we take time to lift up our voices and actually use the words of our mouth and sing? Why do I advocate that we, we spend time together and we, and we have community? And, and why, do, why do we go on retreats and why do we go on mission trips? Because here's my worry. If you don't care about those things, if having God's word constantly being poured into your life isn't a huge desire of yours, or taking the time to pray before your creator, the person who made your soul, or spending time with other Christians for, for edifying your Christian walk, I worry that you are making friends with the world. You see, remember that I said earlier, it's not a good thing to be called you adulterous people. God actually views the people who have more things to resonate with in the, in the world than with Him. That you're an adulterer. Like, look down what it says. He yearns jealously over the spirit that He has made to dwell in us. Like, see in the implication of that, that God desires for your whole heart to be geared towards Him. If your heart was geared towards, towards God and, and Christ and you would enjoy Him, wouldn't that therefore assume that you would care about being here, about being in the Word, about fighting for holiness in your life? But the fact of the matter is, a lot of time, our affections and our interests and our desires are with the world and what the world can offer me. And James says, you adulterous people. The same disordered affections or desires that cause our conflict with our fellow man are also seen in our conflict with God. High school, I say, don't play this game of fire. That you pray to God for whatever, and yet you use the things that God gives you for your own worldly passions. Pursuing your own vision of what the good life is. Trust in the vision of the good life that Christ is all and everything that you need. I don't particularly like being called out in a way of saying like, you're the guy, you're the person. But James is pretty harsh here. He's not saying the issue is with other people or with God. He's saying the issue is with us. That we inherently desire things that are not pleasing to God. But here's where I love scripture, okay? It doesn't leave us hanging. Because here's the solution, the source of our conflict. If you look down, right in verse 6, I love this phrase. But he gives more grace. The solution to our conflict resolution with others and with God is always grace. It is always grace. Grace is a fascinating thing because I believe every single person, Christian or non-Christian, can understand and describe and even experience what grace is. But here's the thing, though. I do not believe that most people 
actually receive grace. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is seen right here. And in fact, if you notice, a lot of times when I pray before I preach, I say this very thing. God, you oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble. God, you oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble. Grace is never received by the proud person. You see, the proud person says that you are the problem. The proud person says, I don't need help. The proud person says, I'm good as I stand. The proud person says, you know, I'm not that bad. You know, there's a person right now in our country running for president who on national television said, yeah, I would ask for forgiveness if there's anything to be asked forgiveness for. I've never sinned. Quote. True or false, that person is humble. False. It's Donald Trump, by the way. I shouldn't have said that, but I did anyways. Here's the thing, though. The humble person is the one who recognizes their need and problem. I don't have a lot of time, guys. Like, there's so much here. I, I could preach for an hour on this passage. But here is something that grace-based humility leads to. If you look down, he goes on. If you receive the grace that God has given you, if you learn to be humble, it will lead to you submitting to God. It will lead to you resisting the devil, and he will flee from you. Grace-based humility will seek purity. You know, um, something I love about this passage here is it, it kind of, it's really interesting because one sense it says, okay, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. But then he says, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Because you know what he's saying? Sometimes when we, when we realize our sin, we realize, okay, I am poor in spirit. I don't have anything. I'm a sinner. Yes, I'm horrible conflict resolution. But God, give me your grace. Okay, cool. I'm good now. And in one sense, you know, I, I think we should quote 1 John 1a, right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. And we need to believe that and we need to trust that every single time we come to God with a heart that is seeking, genuinely seeking his, his love and forgiveness and, and we're acting in repentance, that we should believe that he has in fact forgiven our sins. And we should quote Romans 8.1 that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But James seems to think here that you, when you confess your sin, should not move too quickly. From mourning over your sin. Take the time to think for a second. When you confess your sin, does it actually irk you? Sometimes as your youth pastor, I feel like I've let you guys down in ways in that, you know, advocate, get together with people and talk about the Christian life, life of and why. And we kind of maybe have gotten to this habit to where we can kind of just, yeah, hey, I struggle with this. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I struggle with this. And we kind of just confess our sin and we think that's it. 
We think we're fine and we're justified just because. And here's the thing, like, do not share or confess your sin if it does not break your heart. I don't care if you're able to see in ways that you've messed up. I care whether or not you see your sin as it's pleasing to God and you want to move past it because of what it does to God's heart. Because the true heart of humility says that this sin is wrong and I hate it. And that is the humble heart of which God will give more grace to you. Because you know what the proud heart says? Yeah, this is wrong. But I'm not really going to do anything about it. And so James here says, guys, listen. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is all aspects of what happens when you experience grace. When you know that no matter what you do, you can't be changed in the eyes of God. So here's the main point of James 4. I didn't say it in the beginning because I forgot. Humility is the resolve to value God above ourselves. Humility is the resolve to value God above ourselves. Let's tell, this is just, maybe I'll talk for one more minute. Maybe a minute and ten seconds. If we learn to consider God more valuable than ourselves, to mimic Jesus, who did not consider equality with God, somebody to be grasped, but emptied himself, I think then we'll get to a place that when our science teacher puts us in a place of an extreme injustice, that I know that the humble heart that maybe I have the issues. I'm not saying humility will always cause an end to your problems, but I do think it'll put you on the right track of where you are pleasing God. I think there's a reason why Jesus starts the whole Sermon on the Mount with blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs are the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who admit that they are spiritually bankrupt. Here's the promise, okay? Listen, 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 listen. And all of our conflict resolution and all of our, our, our issues of worldliness and all of our issues with learning to submit to God and be broken about our spirit, here is the promise that God gives. Look down at verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and what? And he will exalt you. I can't help but think of the letter that Jesus wrote to the church of, I think, Sardis. To the one who overcomes, I will give the white garment. And I will put their name in the book of everlasting life and never delete it, never erase it. What would your life look like in your relationships if you learned to humble yourself? To admit that maybe I'm the person. I am the man. Let's pray. God, we've said a lot of things. And now, Father, we ask that you would help us to grasp what your word is saying here. God, I pray that we would not be arrogant in thinking that we know everything. God, I pray that we would not be arrogant in thinking that, ah, we're not that bad. 
But Lord, maybe trusting and having full assurance that you have paid for our debt, we need to take time to actually be grieved by our sin. So I want to give you guys a minute to take time to pray, to ask God that he would give you his grace and that would lead to a, a life of humility.